Welcome to the Take A Seat Podcast. This podcast brings awareness to disability sports and supports. We are talking to experts and athletes with a disability from around the world. Before we get stuck into this episode, we want to say a massive thank you to our sponsor, the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at suncoastspinners.com.au. Welcome back to episode eight, guys. Episode eight, James. We're, we're at eight already. Who are we got on today, Cam? We got Nikki Ayers on today. Nikki Ayers is a power rower that has just competed at Tokyo Games and come back with a fourth place, just fourth place. She has also played for the ACT Brumbies women's seven side. She's competed not once, but twice in the grueling 190-kilometer surf boat George Bass Marathon. That's 190Ks, James. Twice. 190Ks. Twice. Twice. Is that 380Ks? Yeah. Well, I is don't that, know. Is that math? Is that, is that, I think that's right. Yeah. That's too much math for us. No, I think that's right. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Either way, she's a 2019 and 2021 winner of the PR3 Women's Single Skull Interstate as well. And she's a Thrive for Pride ambassador. So how does one get involved in all these things? Well, we'll find out today. Uh, Nikki Ayers, welcome to take a seat with us. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation ahead. We're going to do this a bit differently. I've just thrown this on Cam and Nikki to start off with. What we're going to do is we're actually going to start with the hard cards. So Cam, would you like to explain the hard cards? Yeah. So for the people that haven't heard this before and for yourself, Nikki, uh, we have these hard cards and what we've got written on a standard playing deck of cards. On the back of it is a whole heap of questions that have come from the internet, as well as uh, questions that James and I just... You know, the, oh, that that doesn't quite feel right to just ask that outright. So we've kind of disguised it and put it on this set of cards. Also, some of our guests have wrote in some some different questions this time, which is great. And what we do is we get you to pick out three cards. And from those three cards, we'll read the question on the back of it. And you might have a story on where those cards take you or that question in particular. You can be as vulnerable as you want to be. You can also shelter down as much as you want. So... If you give us, James is going to fan them out, and then hopefully you can see on the screen for us with this one. I'm going to I'm going to do my best, Nikki. We're Cam to pull out three random cards, so I got them all face down. I've shuffled them, and Cam's yeah, going to pull I think that three random good. cards. Any any particular cards in in that you'd like to see in, or grab in particular? Nah, I trust you. Just go for it. Trust me. <laughs> Alrighty, I'm yeah. going to pick King of Clubs. I'm going to get the Queen of Clubs, and mm-hmm. I'm going to get you. Ooh, what number in, in Union were you playing as? Mostly 12. Mostly 12. 12. Oh, geez. Uh, I'll yeah. have to get you a 10. Yeah. It's close to the Yeah. All righty. So the three cards yeah. we have yeah. here. We have question one. Are you proud of being who you are? Question two. Name one thing you've given up for different reasons. And question three. What decision do you wish you'd never made? The first one of being, am I proud of who I am? Yes, 100%. But I don't think I would be as proud if I didn't have my injury that resulted in my disability. You know, my disability has created so many opportunities for me in the people I've met and just in life. You know, before my injury, I took life for granted in so many different ways. But in sport, I took my skill and my talent for granted and I never 
really applied myself and it, you know, it took me to dislocate my knee, tear three ligaments, sever a main artery, sever a main nerve, have multiple complications and get foot drop as a disability and a partial amputation to realise that I was just sitting back and not actually making the most of what I could and actually go for what I wanted. And what I wanted was to represent Australia and play sport, get recognised for that. And throughout that journey, I've also been able to find myself as a member of the LGBTQI community and find my now fiance as well. And I have a great family that have supported me throughout my whole life and more so when I injured myself. And without that experience, I don't think I would be the person I am today. And I honestly am so happy and proud of who I am. That's that's, that's awesome. an incredible answer. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a, a yeah, it was a good question. Just to just to touch back slightly, your reference to to be a Paralympian and, and represent your country at the highest level. I want to touch base with what we were slightly talking to prior to the to the uh, start of the podcast, and that was that you would would have you wanted to be an Olympian so bad that you would have been an Olympic chicken feeder. Yeah, I was. Um, I always set my. I was pretty imaginative as a child. I had a wild imagination <laughs> and really loved feeding the neighbors chickens. And you know, decided I wanted to go to the Olympics. So why not make up my own sport and be the best in the world at feeding a flock of chickens? Um, you know, and then eventually I realized that maybe it wasn't realistic. And, um, I think mum kind of helped me realize that as well. And was like, well, if you're going to apply yourself, you may as well doing something you can actually do, not just this imaginative sport that I had. Um, so yeah, that was like where my passion really developed was just wanting to feed chickens for Australia and wear green and gold. <laughs> well, whilst it might not be an Olympic sport, what it does make is a great conversation on a bus trip. Well, yeah, like a random thing, like my now um, partner, Ellie, when she was growing up, she wanted to um, sell chickens or do something with chickens that was really random as well. And we're just like, okay. <laughs> it's meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was totally. Say, anyway. <laughs> what, what, um, obviously being a chicken feeder and, and representing Australia and the, that passion had to come from somewhere. Was it watching, you know, for myself, um, I still to this day uh, remember every opening ceremony of, of the Olympics and also um, it, it, everyone's going to give me shit for it, but, uh, you know, the anthem, listening to the anthem for the Wallabies or the Kangaroos mm. or any Australian side that plays – and it, it gives me a little bit of a tear in the eye, just wanting to represent Australia. Um, what was it that made you want to be a chicken feeder for Australia? There's got to be something <laughs> that just sparked that want to represent Australia in you. Yeah, like definitely as a kid, like, you know, most kids growing up, you always watch the Olympics once every four years. But for me, um, it's definitely the competitiveness. I grew up with two brothers and a sister and it was always quite competitive. And we were a very big sporting family. Like my dad, my brothers, everyone played rugby league. And as kids, anything with a ball or that was contact, we played it. So we were just a super competitive household. And to be the best in a sport, you go to the Olympics. And that's kind of really where it stemmed from for me. It was mostly competitiveness, but also just growing up and watching people, you know, play sport, doing a sport that they love and achieving their goals of representing their country and end up being the best in the world. So it's like, why wouldn't you want to do that if you love sports and you were competitive as well? Exactly. I know that James is now 
uh, gets to represent Australia at the end of the year, and, and he's done it before. Um, I've been lucky enough to to do it with TRL now. While yes, it's a social sport and everything, it, it still has that I've represented Australia. It gives you that feeling of you've achieved something. And uh, my younger brother, luckily enough, he got to be selected um, in a, I guess you could say, a merit side before me. So he's given me stick yeah. for years <laughs> about it now. So I can only imagine it would have been the same sort of thing with you and your family of that just inner competitiveness to beat each other, who could get their first type of thing as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and like my family all throughout my sporting career, like they've always pushed me, you know, they've recognised, you know, what I could achieve and, you know, could see that I didn't fully believe in myself. So I always had, had them pushing me and, you know, my brothers tried rugby league and never quite got there. So, you know, the default for them was to support me and especially after my injury where, you know, it's such a downtime and it can go, you know, one of two ways. You really embrace it, make the most of it or you don't. And my family really pushed me to do that. So it was good. It's like a, a blessing in disguise, definitely. But it's always great having that. I'd like to say friendly, but it's not so much friendly in my family. Rivalry, <laughs> never, never friendly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you, sure. you talk about that. You talk about that the, they help you throughout that process of after your injury. But how was that support as the injury was happening and unbelievable amount of surgeries with 16 um, in a very short space of time, 10 within 21 days in particular, almost losing your leg and, and all of that process. How was your family as a support network through that? Well, to start off with, they were amazing and I love them all to bits and I couldn't be more thankful and grateful to have the family that I have. My mum, so I grew up down on the south coast in a little town called Dalmini and so my mum essentially quit her job and she moved to Canberra for 12 months. My sister, I was living with her in Canberra at the time and so for my first eight weeks in hospital, my mum and my sister were there every single day except for one day, I think it was. My family would come up on the weekends, you know, they were always there saying you can do this get through the next surgery and just supporting me you know when I was having those down days they always had something to take my mind off the reality of what was happening and being there and just you know showing love showing support and being there every step of the way my mum and my sister you know I couldn't drive I couldn't do a lot of things for myself for that 12 month period and they were always there taking me to my appointments taking me to rehab like my sister and I I think I was maybe a week out of hospital after four weeks in ICU and four weeks on the ward and we were at the gym, you know, we were there. She was grabbing my weights for me, helping me out, so um, doing everything and supporting me along the way and it was like that for the first 12 months until I got a bit more independence and could do things and then once I got into rowing, they were there again just being like, come on, you can do this when I didn't feel like I could. So they were just always there whenever I was down, I had someone to chat to no matter what it was or just have someone there in those days where it was just too unbearable, too painful and I just needed to sleep or just to hold someone. They were there for me. Are you able to please describe as um, as in detail or as, as not as you'd like uh, the specific injury and then the uh, the outcome of, the, of your disability? So I got my injury playing rugby union and in a tackle, I dislocated my knee. And when I dislocated my knee, I tore three ligaments. I severed my perineal nerve. The surgeons have said they've never been able to find one end of it. 
I also severed my popliteal artery. Um, so I lost blood supply to the lower half of my leg and I developed compartment syndrome as a complication to that. So from the compartment syndrome, um, they were the majority of the surgeries I had when I had the 10 in 21 days. They were to remove all the dead muscle that died from having no oxygen, from no blood flow. And then from the perineal nerve damage, I developed foot drop. So on my right foot, I cannot lift my foot up or I actually have very minimal movement. I can move it to the left a little bit and that's it. And turned out later on, we kind of discovered I have tibial nerve damage as well, which we didn't realize originally. So essentially my disability is I have foot drop and I have a partial amputation of my right leg. So just to give uh, people uh, in context, and Nikki, you'll do this better than I will as a nurse, um, <laughs> The nerve that she's talking about is the one that just pretty much from knee down uh, runs down the front of the leg, obviously innervates all of the, the muscles down through the front. So pretty much you, you think of your shin, that's mostly all all gone um, from the dead, uh, the dead muscle and that was taken away. So yeah, as explained with the compartment syndrome, when there's a lack of oxygen within the blood or no blood in particular, that, that causes cell death. Um, and once there's cell death, it's pretty much uh, you've got to operate um, from there. And that's what you, you've had in, in a very short space of time um, to save the leg rather than losing it. Yeah. Um, the operations actually <laughs> save, saved you to keep your leg. Yeah, that's exactly it. I remember, you know, one of the most vivid memories I have and probably I guess one of the most traumatic memories is when I finally got taken to the theatre, the operating theatre for my first surgery, I asked the vascular surgeon if I was going to lose my leg and he said yes. And so I remember being put to sleep crying and when I woke up, the first thing I do did was felt my leg and I could feel it there and, you know, they said from if I had my surgery within 10 hours from my injury, I essentially would have had minimal complications from the time of injury to my time of surgery was 11 hours. So theoretically, I should have had my leg amputated. But the surgeon said, because I was so fit and young, they um, took the chance and didn't do that. And so, yeah. So I should have had my leg amputated, but being young and fit and having a really awesome surgeon has made the difference. And, you know, I've had a friend ask me one day, do I wish that they amputated my leg, which was a really interesting question. And for me, I was like, if I had it amputated, my rehab and my recovery would have been a lot quicker. But then as a result, I wouldn't be the person that I am today if that happened. And so I'm grateful that they didn't, they took the chance and I have my leg that I have. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. I know this is completely different and, and I'm not trying to downplay this at any time, but when I, I had a shoulder operation from uh, rugby in particular, and when you go into surgery, uh, the surgeon comes in and generally writes on whatever limb or whatever that they're going to operate on. And my surgeon being a, a real smart ass went, uh, so it's left knee ACL, right? And I freaked out. I was like, no, 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 no. It's, it's my right shoulder, my shoulder, like freaking out. And he tried to make light of it. And I was like, holy, like I freaked out. And I was just getting, you know, the cartilage put back on the bone. Um, to The reason I bring that up is the mindset for you to be – put under just before uh you've been told that you know you're going to lose your leg that's that would have to be heavy like your mind would be racing and yeah. then uh this sudden realization when you wake up that you've still got your leg your emotions would have been on this absolute roller coaster ride for sure 
Yeah, definitely. They were for a couple of hours before my surgery, like from the time of my injury with my nursing background, I knew it wasn't good. Like I couldn't feel my foot and I had pins and needles instantly. And then as the night went on, you know, the compartment syndrome as that was setting in, it kind of felt like my leg was going to explode and I was like, something's not right. And so I knew deep down that there was a very good chance I was going to lose my leg that night. And so when the surgeon said yes, it kind of really just cemented that to me. And I was just like, you just, you've never thought about that and you just don't have time. And you're just like, my life is going to change. And then, yeah, feeling that leg, it was like a big sense of relief and like happiness and sadness, but like, just didn't know what was ahead. Like I knew it was going to be tough. And luckily for me, I had quite a lot of uh, pain relief as well, which helped (laughs) get through it all. It's something that you've just tweaked with me as well, that you said, um, you know, if it was done within a certain time frame, you would have, uh, you know, probably had less complications and and stuff. But I've read somewhere that you want to do Royal Flying Doctors. Did that have a factor into wanting to be a part of the Royal Flying Doctors or was that already something that you had kind of thought about previous? I was something I thought about previous with my background in intensive care nursing. It's quite common for a lot of us to want to do flying doctor, but I just really love the the autonomy and, you know, the opportunity to to travel and have lots of new experience with the flying doctor, um, you know, and, but also having this experience and thinking, well, maybe I can help make a difference for someone else, you know, and they can have an outcome that's positive like mine as a result if doing flying doctor or remote and rural nursing, like that would be amazing as well. But it was something I wanted to do beforehand. But I guess the experience is just kind of like, wow, maybe I can actually make a difference for some people. We'll jump on to the second question. It actually works really well. Um, This may go in a completely different direction to what I'm thinking, but this might work well. What decision do you wish you never made? Yeah, that's that's a tricky one, isn't it? I know, I just like, I try to live life with like a you know a no regrets motto or for me like a big thing is like I think people decisions they wish they never made are things they failed at or didn't go according to plan but for me I think failure is a positive we learn you learn so much from what you deem a failure and you know you can reflect on it and look at why you didn't get the outcome you want work on it make changes and improve and then next time you can make it work like an example for me was in 2019 I didn't get selected into the Australian para rowing team you know and I was pretty devastated and ready just to quit right then and there but I didn't I stuck to it I looked back on it and made the plan of okay why didn't I get selected got feedback what can I do differently you know drop back work a little bit pick up extra sessions and do this and then as a result of that determination and reflection I then got selected in 2020 to go to the Tokyo Paralympic Games so for me right now I can't think of anything I regret or I kind of would have done differently just because of that principle of turning failures into positives and learning from them and growing and becoming a better person. The Take a Seat podcast is in your ears thanks to the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a wheelchair-based sporting club. They run social inclusion programs, including but not limited to basketball and rugby. If you want to get involved with the Suncoast Spinners programs, you can just rock up at Mergen, Morayfield and Sippy Downs on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays or contact them on Instagram, Facebook or their website www.suncoastspinners.com.au. 
The Suncoast Spinners programs are for people of all ages and abilities. They're looking for players, officials, and volunteers to help with all of their programs. So make sure you check out the Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, or on their website again, www.suncoastspinners.com.au. I, uh, I love what you said. When people bring this up about a particular thing that they notice or see, then it brings back that trauma and it brings back the situation and you have to live through it again. Especially when someone asks, you know, uh, someone in a wheelchair, they go, you know, why are you in a wheelchair? It instantly brings back that traumatic event. But what I want to ask is you made the decision until you spoke to a, a, a particular uh, power rower, um, Jed, and we've already said the name. I'm not going to even attempt to say it. Um, but you made the decision to uh, cover up your your scar. Um, yeah. Now knowing what you know and where you're at and where you feel with your uh, injury and disability in particular, do you wish you never covered that up from the get-go? I'd, I'd say no because it's hindsight. Like I didn't know any better then and at that time I had so much emotion, so much trauma to deal and to cope with one of those coping mechanisms was essentially to hide it so that I could work on what I need to or instead of putting all my energy into embracing my leg and accepting it as me I was able to kind of put that aside and go to rehab and do all those things that I needed to do to physically get better before I could work on my mental health more of it so it's like it's a tricky question in hindsight I love to say yeah like I'd love to say I had the strength and the knowledge at that point in time and the the mental health to be able to accept my leg for what it was and that it was now a part of me, but I didn't have that. And without having that conversation with Jed where it was so pivotal for me because he really made me realise that I can't change my leg, but I can change my mindset. And, you know, that was that light bulb moment for me. And from that day on, I didn't cover up my leg. And, you know, I have a pretty obvious in-your-face scar. Like the other day, just a little segue, we were walking um, at the shops and this older couple were looking at my leg and talking about it. My sister was behind me because I was with my little niece and they're like, oh, my God, did you see her leg? Like, I wonder what happened. And my sister goes, oh, she got bit by a shark, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just making light of it because it's we're just so used to it where it's not for other people, but it's my leg now. I can cope with that and I deal with that. And lucky for me, chicks dig scars as well. So it's been a blessing in disguise. Um, so, yeah, I think. Looking back on what I know now, I don't know, I don't think it would have made a difference if I had my leg uncovered. It probably would have made it worse, to be honest, because I would have had a lot more to deal with all at once. And, you know, toughen as it is going through a physical trauma, let alone the emotional and psychological trauma on top of it as well. And trauma that my family went through as well. And I was absorbing that and I could see the trauma they went through being so helpless every day, watching me be in pain and not being able to do anything about it as well. That That's an unbelievable that all answer. I got for that. That yeah. was a. Yeah. That was what I was kind of hoping you would say uh, in the story of everyone deals with things in their in their own time. It doesn't mean that it's yeah. a bad decision. It doesn't mean it's the right decision. It's when you feel comfortable mm. and when you feel not that you're accepting, but you feel comfortable in your own skin. But you your support network was ready for it, and everything happens at the right time for the right reason in the right ways. It's definitely it, it's exactly like that. Uh, my brother has a scar, and and he does the same thing as well. But even yesterday, um, my little family went for a, a walk, and I've got a, a sports chair and jumped in the sports chair, and I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go for a push, and. 
<laughs> strangely enough, we went to the park and, and uh, there was a couple of young boys on the Flying Fox. Anyways, I'm pushing in a, in a sports wheelchair along and, and get to the park and I, I uh, pulled up. My daughter goes and jumps on the on the swing and starts cruising around. And I stood up out of the wheelchair. <laughs> These couple of boys like freaked out. They didn't know what was going on. But the looks that they'd given pre that, they, they actually genuinely were like, oh, there's a pram and there's a, a, a sports wheelchair and there's a kid running around. Yeah. And you could see their minds ticking. And then when I stood up, the, the, it was a <laughs> whole nother world. Very similar to MC Wheels in episode three where he says, you know, the girl come up and, yes, and yes. started talking about what planet are you from? And yeah, yeah. you do get a lot of, yeah. of those type of looks. And, and again, back yeah. to your, sorry, it was your sister that, Said uh, you got bitten by a shark. Yeah, yeah, my yeah. sister. <laughs> and like, likewise again with with MC Wheels when uh, he was at the at the crossing and, and the young fella walked up to him, asked what happened to you, and he said, "Oh, I got run over by a car." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like also as I mentioned earlier, you know, it's kind of a way to help you cope as well. Because as I said, you know, it was a colleague who said to me once when we're talking, you know, about my experience and people coming up to you that just see your leg and only see you as that and they come up and ask you what happened and they don't realise that every time you ask that question, you're asking that person to relive that trauma. Mm. So instead of going through that trauma each time, it's also a coping mechanism where you can make some light of it and have some fun but not actually go through that trauma each time as well. Yeah, it's um, a, it's exactly yeah. what MC Wheels was was touching on. You know, he it, it, it gets exhausting. He, he didn't want to talk about it anymore. He got to the point yeah. it was just like, I'm 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 sick of it. I don't want to like, and just made up a, yeah. a random story. Like you say, it's you know, it's it's giving them an answer, and it's whatever it might be the, a real one, or in, in sometimes an appropriate one as an alien uh, with his space spacecraft in the <laughs> yeah. kitchen section. But um, but that like you say, it's it's that coping mechanism to to just sort of avoid avoid that reliving the trauma. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah. I think was it, um, was it Corey and Sean, we had that conversation and, uh, we were talking in a sense that maybe the next time that you see someone in the community in a wheelchair or perhaps, uh, with a physical disability, instead of seeing that first, just see the person and maybe just say, Hey, and just, how are you? Yep. That's exactly what it is. Like I've had that experience. I was at a work social function and people were just asking me about my leg, but they would never ask me how I was or have a chat with me. And it's like, there is a person here behind this disability. There is a person who can talk to you and, you know, create awareness as well. But some people just, you know, a big part of it is creating awareness and education to people that you don't have to be a quadriplegic to be in a wheelchair. There are people who have disabilities that can be in a wheelchair, that can walk and still do everyday things. So, there's still a lot of wet, like a lot of work to do in awareness and education to create that. So you can go to the park and, you know, go with your family in a wheelchair and hop out and do stuff and also feel like you're not being judged or people come up and asking you those traumatic questions that really at the end of the day, what purpose do they serve? One of the things that I, I've also, you kind of said it here, but you read the Kurt Fernley book, which was motivational, but it was also realizing that if you'd been belted dad a bad card that you could do something and make the most of it and also being part of an elite athlete world there's so many people that have overcome challenges and adapted to those challenges independently you found that really inspiring do you still feel that or do you still do you now inspire other people have you found ways to to pass on that knowledge to people i definitely feel it like you know for me reading kurt fernley's book was um 
pivotal in my recovery. It really made me realize that people have their own experiences and they overcome those hurdles in life in different ways. But we, you know, we all, we can all get there and with the right supports. And, you know, for me, it was like, actually I could, I was laying in that hospital and it's like, I could feel sorry for myself and not do anything and, you know, not have a great outcome. Or I could take control of what I could control and give myself that best recovery and the best outcome possible for me. And as I said, like that conversation with Jed, it was such a casual conversation that had a big impact on me and my recovery. And so what I'm trying to do now is share my story to make people realize that, yes, you do get dealt bad cards in life or you do have failure, but it's not the end of the world. You can turn them into positives and you can control what you can control to get the outcome that you want and work towards it and achieve what you want to achieve. So by sharing my story, I hope to motivate people to make those changes and achieve what they want to achieve. This is possibly the best segue that we've ever done, but you've been Delta card, which has a question number three (laughs) written on the back of it. And it may just line up very nicely. And James is going to read it out again. Name one thing you've given up for difficult reasons or um, not given a go. Yeah. I think for me, like not giving a go, like with rugby, rugby union, I like I knew I had talent. I knew I had the skills to achieve my dream, dream of putting in that green and gold Wallaroos jersey, but I didn't apply myself. I didn't have a crack. I didn't do what I needed to. And as a result, I missed out on that goal. You know, I missed out on so much opportunity because of that, you know, I was kind of scared to actually apply myself. But I think also for me, I was scared of failing at that time in my life as well, because what if I wasn't good enough? What if I couldn't achieve what I wanted to achieve? I couldn't do it. So that's probably one time that I really just didn't have a go. And I've learned so much from it now, looking back onto it. That fear of failure is is something that, that impacts a lot of people, stops a lot of people from doing, doing all sorts of things, or it be the simplest tasks in a day to as you were saying, you know, applying themselves to participate and, and really, really give it a go to try and win that that position on the green green and gold side. And it's something that is really, the only person stopping you is is you. And once you overcome that, and for the most part, the the individual willpower can, can drive you to do the most unexpected things. Yep, definitely. I agree 100%. You know, you, your own worst enemy, but you're your best friend as <laughs> yeah, well. And absolutely. at the end of the day, yeah, you are the one stopping you from achieving what you want to achieve. But then you're also the one who's making you achieve what you want to achieve as well. And a big part of that is mindset um, from my personal experience is just believing in yourself that you can achieve what you want to. And yes, it is going to be hard, but you need to be sensible and plan out how you're going to get there and don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to, if you reach a barrier, you know, you have to overcome another another obstacle because you grow and develop so much as a person, as an athlete, just in so many ways. And it's so rewarding. Um, I think you learn more from your failures than your successes. So can we go back to the train for Tokyo? Yeah. So that's how I got involved in para sports. So after my injury, um, one of the ladies I played rugby union with, she worked with a member of the Paralympics Australia team and had a chat with her. And she said, look, there's an information session at the AIS. It's a train for Tokyo day. So I was still on crutches then. My mum and dad came along. We had no idea what to expect. You know, I was at home in my living room after my injury, watching the Paralympics in Rio. And not once did I think that could be me. I kind of haven't really realized that I had a disability and what that could mean. And so I went along to that 
and there was some testing for some different sports and, you know, that's where I met Kat Ross as well, who I'm um, row with at the moment and got to know her story and, you know, just what para sports brought to her life and how much they meant to her. And from that, I got a letter from Paralympics Australia saying, here's the four sports we'd recommend, which were wheelchair tennis, wheelchair basketball, rowing and cycling. Um, have a go at them and see how you go. So for me, I thought it's probably a bit hard learning a wheelchair on top of another sport. So I tried to go into cycling and rowing because I had previously done surf boat rowing where I'd rode the two George Bass marathons over 190 kilometres from Bateman's Bay to Eden in seven days. And I really loved surf boating. So I was kind of like, well, how different could, you know, rowing on flat water be? And I was very wrong. And (laughs) (laughs) that's, yeah, yeah, so wrong. That's kind of how I fell into it. And I had a friend's dad who was coaching at a club in Canberra and the rest is kind of history for me. So But going to that come and try day, it was so eye-opening for me, seeing people with disabilities, a different range of disabilities, how they test the different sports that are available and chatting to people about what para sports meant to them and made them feel included and, you know, almost gave them a purpose as well. It was really enlightening and it was um, such a pivotal moment again for my recovery and I just the stars aligned for me, and I couldn't be more grateful for it. So, were the were the were the actual sports on display there, or was it was it more of the you did like the sports testing and performance sort of analysis, and then they gave you this uh, recommendation for what sports you would be suited for based on those yeah. results. It was kind of a bit of both. So there was like some people. I think there was a para taekwondo representative. There was a para tennis, and you could go over and do like some skill drills specific to that sport that kind of suited your disability. But I was still on crutches then, so I. I did some um, wheelchair tennis throwing activity stuff, but otherwise I couldn't really do a lot because I physically couldn't. So that's essentially what it was. You'd go along, you'd just try the different sports, do the different skills games they had. There was some testing, some fitness testing, height and weight and things like that as well. So obviously um, they got some data from that on the Paralympics Australia side of it. Mm as well so and that was really my first experience of seeing a range of people with disabilities just going out there and just doing what they loved it was yeah it was really cool so I was very surprised you know I just literally rocked up on crutches chatted to a few people through a couple of tennis balls and got a letter saying go try all these sports we think um you have potential through some very good tennis balls clearly yeah (laughs) have you given it a, a thought to perhaps playing wheelchair rugby league yeah would be perfect um, for it. Uh, thanks. Yes, I totally have friends have been like, oh, you should play wheelchair rugby. I'm like, oh, I don't meet like the um, the criteria for my disability, but I love it. I'd love to be more involved in sports and I've been keeping an eye on what you guys are doing with wheelchair rugby league and how much it's just growing as well. And I think it, locally here in Canberra there's um, – quite a bit of development happening within that space. So, yeah, yeah I'd love to get involved. Yeah, yeah Matt, the, Matt Collins. Matt Collins is the guy I talked to about uh, down in Canberra. Actually, they're, um, they're with Raiders too. I don't know specifically. Yeah. I should know. But the Australian side will be down there doing a camp. Lord knows what date it is. But uh, we'll, we'll put it on the socials, I think, at some point. And we'll, we'll, we'll promote that, that as well. But we're going to be down there, the Australian side, the Australian Wheelchair Rugby League side, doing a camp. But we'll also do some community-based stuff, uh, and we'll try and promote the local area. So, Nikki, I mean, I hope to see you there because Most definitely, you know, yeah. even, even if also, you don't fit the the, the um, criteria for classified well, athletes, you'd most certainly yeah, be able to participate yeah. as, as an able-bodied. Well, if she's a Paralympian, she'd have to meet the criteria for a 
uh, classified athlete within wheelchair rugby league. And that's a big difference between wheelchair rugby league and wheelchair rugby. Wheelchair rugby is designed for uh, generally a quadriplegic spinal cord injury, which does have a very large criteria um, to be able to, you know, represent Australia within it. But uh, James sitting right beside me has absolutely no disability of any form uh, that questionable that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's he's in the Australian uh, wheelchair rugby league side that's gone to the World Cup. And that's yeah. because you can have two able-bodied athletes play at the international level as well as uh, three disabled on the court at any one time. But the squad is generally yeah. 12 players. So you'd most definitely fit the criteria for it. It's basically Oztag in a wheelchair. Yeah, uh, that's the easiest way to, to describe it. That's the easiest way to describe it. It's two tags on either sleeve. You pass a footy sideways. Uh, if the ball goes on the ground, you can wheel up and pick it up. Um, when you get tagged, you go down, place the ball on the ground, pass it off to the side. Exactly the same as, as NRL rugby league. Put a kick in like an AFL hand pass, um, conversions from the sideline. So, you know, all of that, what you grew up as a 12-year-old and, and being excluded from uh, being a female playing rugby league going through, you could quite easily now go back to those roots and, and play rugby league all the way through to representative Australian level. And what makes it even better is the fact that it's not just uh, men, that it's the most inclusive sport in the world because it's men, women, children, abled and disabled playing yeah. at the same time on the same court. So as long as you're over the age of, I think it's 12, you can play internationally as a man or a woman yeah. with a disability or without disability right through to World Cup level. So you would yeah. definitely fit the criteria for wheelchair rugby league. Awesome. That's, it's so good to have such an inclusive sport. You know, inclusivity is such a big thing in so many different aspects of life and especially sport. And to have a sport that does have able body and disabled men, women, children, adults is just amazing. So, yeah, I would definitely love to come and try and help promote and create awareness on this amazing sport that's out there for everybody to play and enjoy. What I find really interesting is that um, you said that you didn't fit the criteria. What was the criteria that you were you were you were given? And, and sort of a sort of a two part question, like how does that how, what? Uh, yeah, what was it? And then how did that make you sort of feel? Like It's more like a classification should have been the US. So each sport has, each um, para sport has their own classification system. So um, with wheelchair rugby, my understanding is I think you have to have at least both lower limbs and one arm impaired. I'm not sure on the specifics on that. So with me, it's just mostly my one leg that I have my disability for. So like an example is with um, like rowing, there's three categories. So I'm in the PR3, which means I can use my whole body, my leg, trunk and arms. Then there's PR2, which is people who generally use their whole trunk and their arms and PR1, which is uh, mostly a quadriplegic, um, high-level paraplegics who can only use their shoulder and arms. So that's rowing. But then like if you look at swimming, you know, they have, I think, almost 10 different um, classifications, which can be intellectual disabilities, visual impairments and whatnot. So each sport yeah. is so different. So that's also, I think, with going back to that train for Tokyo, with my foot drop, they were the sports that I was best suited for because of my impairment, not just my amazing athletic ability that yeah. I made soaring me. So I see, I see that the, there's a bit of confusion. So the rugby league that Cameron and I are talking to is separate to the murder ball or rugby that um, I yeah, believe yeah. is what you were, you were trying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. 
that makes more sense. Yeah. I was, yeah. Yeah. With, so, yeah. no, I wasn't, I wasn't aware on how, um, like, I was definitely aware of wheelchair rugby league, but I wasn't aware of how inclusive it is, um, yeah. which is awesome. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, classification status is, but I think you would most certainly fit. Like, I mean, we look at Zach Schumacher and <laughs> I think his classification status is debated. <laughs> yeah, everyone debates <laughs> Zach's. But at the same time, Zach, um, he actually does have classification uh, which classifies him as a, as a disabled athlete. And it, it's great because it just means that another person's playing the sport. Um, if, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't matter if, if it's a significant disability or if it's a minor one, it's still something that's going to have him classified and playing the sport in general, which is awesome in, in my mind. Can I ask, what uh, to what degree do you, th- this might be a bit of a loaded question, to what degree do you believe inclusion should be at? When should inclusion stop? If at all. It shouldn't stop. <laughs> it shouldn't. Um, you know, there's so many gaps in equality, um, equity, everything in sporting and so many aspects of, aspects of life. Inclusivity, it's so important. Um, I know it's kind of like a tough question. It, it almost needs to be a podcast in itself. It's talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, um, I think uh, probably one of the best examples is talking about comparing the Olympics to the Paralympics last year in Tokyo and how stunned and surprised the public were to know that Paralympic athletes did not receive any type of medal money where every Olympian who medaled got medal money. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and that just there is the perfect example of the inequalities that exist as well and, you know, how inclusive, again, I guess that's not even a word. You know, it is just between this able body and para para athlete. I know what do you call it? there is. There's still just such a big gap to go, and I think a big part of it is there's not enough awareness for people that just know how how better we could be with inclusiveness in sports. You know, for yeah. us, like with rowing in the para categories, we have men and women. We have mixed categories where for the able bodies, they don't. They're purely men and they're purely women as well. So. Um, and there's not a lot of other sports that do have a mixed category as well, and it's a lot of segregation with that too. We were talking to Carol Cook yeah. on, on Friday, and she said that uh, her cycling has now actually just been segregated as men and women. It was mixed, um, but now there's enough women to be able to make a men's and women's classification as well. But Chloe Dalton, yeah. uh, rugby seven star and played AFL and many other sports, she did a huge, huge push for um, – you know, they, they were gold medalists in, in Rio for the Rugby Sevens and she made a massive push to get uh, the Paralympic athletes paid equally as the same as yeah. the Olympic athletes, which was huge and, and was very successful in, in that avenue. And Australia is only the third country in the world. Interestingly enough, that Tokyo was the first uh, Paralympics, to my understanding, that America, Canada, and Australia all paid their Paralympic athletes the equivalence or close to the equivalence of what the Olympic athletes did. Previous to Tokyo, um, I think there was no country that had actually paid their Paralympic athletes um, any form of financial figures. I think it was, yeah, it was real that it sort of came out. And I don't know if it's like sort of society being a bit blind to it or negligent or just sort of not questioning it. But I, I, it comes back to that point of awareness as to what is happening, the intricacies of, of political sort of views as to what's happening behind the scenes. Because 
you're not involved, you really don't see it and you don't, then you don't know. So I think a lot of these things need to be sort of brought out and, and, and dust up the cobwebs just to show everyone what is actually happening and more importantly, what is not happening. Yeah, exactly. Like people don't know what they don't know. Like people didn't know that we didn't get paid. So how could they support it? But like you think about it with your para-athletes, Everyone has a disability, so therefore, you know, some way they're impacted in everyday life and a big impact of that is financially. A lot of para-athletes are having to work and train at an elite level on top of that as well where a lot of the able body programs, they get supported and financially and have the supports in place to be a full-time athlete and study on the side, not as a main income for them as well. So there's a lot of disparity in that. So the fact that those people who did medal got paid is amazing, but there's still a long way to go for Australian sport and para-athletes to be more equal with that as well. Absolutely. I was going to do a slight sidestep here, but you're a Thrive for Pride ambassador. Do you want to give us a bit of enlightenment on how you become that ambassador and what's involved in in being that ambassador? Also plug. Yeah, Yeah. plug plug, plug away. (laughs) Yeah, so the AIS Thrive with Fight Pride program, it's an amazing initiative. It's um, where the, the pilot program for this, essentially applying for it, how I got involved was pretty easy. The AIS just put out an expression of interest. I just put in why I want to be involved and, you know, the difference I want to make in helping create more diversity and inclusion amongst elite athletes and sporting at a local level level in Australia. And so the program's essentially designed at creating education and awareness on how we can become more diverse and inclusive in all sports at all levels, so your local, national, international levels, and creating environments where athletes feel safe to be who they are. And, you know, it can have such a big impact on your mental health. People quit sports or people have negative mental health outcomes because a sport isn't inclusive and accepts them for who they are, yet all they are is just a person trying to to play the sport that they love and be who they are, but yet there's still many, so many barriers in place that stop that. And so my role as an ambassador is to create the education awareness on how we can be more inclusive and um, support the diverse culture that we have as Australian athletes and as Australians as well. That's incredible. That's exactly what our whole project started off on inclusiveness um, being right through from every aspect. Um, I know that my father being Indigenous, he got excluded from a lot of things. So you know, there's there's ethnicity exclusion, there's um, sexuality exclusion, yeah. and then there's disability and ability exclusion, whichever way you want to uh, paint that picture. So there's so many different as- aspects that yeah. – um, and then, then there's also race. Uh, but, you know, we, we need to – we're living in 2022 now. It should be that uh, you're Nikki, I'm Cameron, this is James. We are people irrespective of yep. anything else. We are just people – and we have had a have a chat or we get to know each other and whatever else, nothing else should come into it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't agree more. I said it better myself. It's, you know, it's not looking at exclusion, it's inclusion. How can we include people? How can we get more people involved? We all know the benefits physically, emotionally, mentally of being involved in sports as the example. So why aren't we doing more to get people involved? Um, and yeah, just because some people might look a little bit different or, you know, their sexual orientation is different to what someone else is, that shouldn't impact 
who they are as a sports person and what they can achieve as a sports person as well. So, um, yeah, that's why I got involved in the program and I'm really looking forward to helping make change and bring awareness and education and a diverse and inclusive culture no matter who you are. Is there anything that uh, we haven't touched on that you would like to have a conversation about in in general that, uh, you know, we've gone all over the park? Yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. We've had a really good chat, um, covered a lot of core principles of mine and my experience. And hopefully, as I said, people who've listened to this podcast, they can take something and are motivated to make change. And, you know, people out there at their local sporting organisations, like maybe just reflect and think, how can we be more inclusive and um, get more people and create a safe environment for everyone to come and play sports and be who they are? Thanks for listening to this episode. We appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast, but most importantly, sharing it with people you think it will impact the most. Before we go, again, a massive thanks to our sponsor, the Sunco Spinners. The Sunco Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow the Sunco Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at sunkospinners.com.au. 